And all God's people said together, Amen. You guys can grab a seat. Well, good morning. Um, this is a really special morning for us at Redemption Arcadia. Uh, we talk a lot at this church. Uh, the motto of our church is that we are gospel-centered and outward-focused. And if you know the history of Redemption Church, which I'm assuming many of you do not, it's a unique story in that there were three congregations that decided to come together where in a lot of environments that we've seen churches split. This was three congregations coming together to make up Redemption Church. Second Mile Church, East Valley Bible Church, and Praxis Church came together for the sole intention of believing that being together we would be stronger and able to do more service and more planting of churches together than we would apart. In the midst of that, Justin Anderson, who was the planting pastor and lead pastor of our Tempe congregation and this congregation here in Arcadia, um, really began to feel a stir inside his heart for the city of San Francisco, and the leadership team began to pray with him, and part of our outward focus, we realized God was telling us he wanted us to plant a church in the very center of the city of San Francisco. And so today, we announced that to you in October. Today, it's our opportunity um, as Redemption Arcadia to send Justin off, and he's going to be preaching for us today. And this is extremely exciting. We are a church that believes in planting of new churches so that people can see the glory of Jesus and the love of Jesus everywhere. We did not have it on our radar screen to think that God was going to call us to do a work in San Francisco, but we are, and Justin's going to be leaving ideally here in the next month, and so he's with us this morning. We're going to have a great moment of worship together, time of worship together, and then a praying send-off to end our service, but before we do that, I'm going to ask you to stand one more time as we hear from God's Word and prepare our hearts to hear it preached. Galatians chapter 5, starting in verse 16, but I say, Walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. For this is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. And welcome, Justin Anderson. Good morning, good morning. It's good to be here uh, again with you. It's been a long time. I haven't been regularly preaching here uh, in about six months, which seems crazy that that's happened. But uh, in fact, r- raise your hand if you started coming to Arcadia in the last six months. Raise it up high. Thank you, Frank. Uh, yeah, so half of you. So for most of you, including Frank, I am just a bald guest preacher. And so uh, that's, that's fantastic. One of the, the obviously massive upgrades you get from me to Frank is hair. Uh, <laughs> his is fantastic, and uh, mine is diminishing. So uh, it, is, uh, it is good to be back here. It's, it's uh, been quite a ride from uh, the very first time we ever met here. There was no air conditioning in this building, and we were in one of the rooms downstairs. Uh, just trying to convince people that they wouldn't die if they came to church here because uh, it was summertime and it was hot. 
but uh, nobody died, uh, and, and so we're, we're still here, and it's going well, and I'm, and I'm confident and excited about the future of Arcadia. So um, I want to give you a quick update on where we're at in terms of San Francisco. Um, our move date is uh, April 16th, which is just under a month. Um, we are hopeful that we will be able to move then. We still have to sell our house. It um, doesn't have to be all done by then, but we need to get something uh, moving in that direction. Uh, we are looking for places there in San Francisco. Um, just to give you an idea, San Francisco just surpassed Manhattan, according to one article I read today, as the least affordable city in America. Um, and uh, so that was disappointing. Um, we have budgeted, just to give you a sense, we have budgeted uh, $3,500 for an apartment. Uh, that will be about a thousand square feet and uh, so it's um, Stupid stupid expensive and the question that we get more than any is where exactly are you going to be? And we are literally going to be in the very center of the city In fact the neighborhood we want to live in has a, a monument to it being the center of the city And so uh, that's where we want to be kind of um, if you are a little older uh, Haight-Ashbury is the neighborhood just north of where we are, and it's right there in our plant area. Um, we're looking at the Coal Valley, Inner Sunset, uh, Lower Haight kind of area. So uh, we're excited to, to be going. Uh, we're excited to, to have a team going with us. We have two other families that are committed, uh, Ryan Elan and his uh, wife and daughter. Uh, Ryan is one of the pastors in Tempe, does our communities. Um, they are committed to go and should be there the end of May. Um, and then CJ and Renee Bergman and their son Keen um, are already uh, in the suburbs outside the city where, where CJ's parents live. Uh, CJ has been a worship pastor here in the valley for a long time, first at Highlands up in North Scottsdale and then at Mission Community Church um, in the southeast valley, kind of uh, northwest New Mexico. So um, we are excited to have them with us. Uh, it's a good team. We got six people. The plan is to move into the neighborhood, start a Bible study, uh, hope it grows, and when it does, start another one and another one until we need to meet and gather on a Sunday, and we're hoping that happens sometime in the first five years. So um, that could be a prayer request. A um, couple of two things I, I would ask for, for prayer. Um, one, pray for finances. It's just a reality of where we're at. We have a lot of money that we need to raise. Um, it is the least affordable city. It's also the least churched city. It also has the least amount of uh, children of any city in America by 2% less than Manhattan. 13% of the population of San Francisco is under 18. Um, so there's not very many kids, not very many families, more dogs, literally more dogs than children in the city. Um, it's, a, uh, it's a very different, different place. So Please pray for financial considerations. Pray um, for the, just the logistics of that transition. I was telling one of the guys uh, before the service, just I, I didn't realize how big a move this was until um, it was too late to change my mind. And, uh, and it's just massive. There's just a lot of moving pieces, and it's, it's a big deal for our family. So please pray for that and for the other two members of the team. Um, and, then, uh, and then at the end of the day, pray the prayer that my daughter prays every night, that the people in San Francisco would love Jesus. That's, that's about as simple as, uh, as we can do, okay? So we'll be in Galatians chapter 5. Uh, please turn there as you are. I will say one more thing. Um, I, we're going to miss you guys like crazy, and it, this, this whole process has been far more difficult emotionally than I ever guessed it would be, and, uh, and so we'll miss you. I've enjoyed these last seven years immensely, and, uh, and so thank you for letting me uh, be a part of your lives, at least the half of you that have known me um, that are in the room. Appreciate that. Galatians 5 will be in uh, verse 16 through 26, and this is, 
this is a big transition passage for this book as we near the end of the book. The first chapter was kind of on Paul and Paul's life and who he was and his journey. The, the last three chapters, um, Paul has been very consistent in teaching the same thing over and over and over and over to the point that you are probably now very tired of the idea of salvation by grace and kind of wishing you could do something because you're just tired of hearing about it. Um, and, and Paul has, has banged that idea so hard because these Galatians um, just didn't get it. There was infiltrating into their church um, legalism and some emphasis on circumcision, which just never ceases to be weird to me, um, and, and uh, just, just some teachings of Jewish Christians that were undermining the gospel. And so Paul has gone to great lengths um, at times um, bordering on what, what we will call, I, I shouldn't say that Paul bordered on it, but I think we in our preaching can at times border on what theologians call antinomianism, which we'll speak of in just a moment. But we see here a transition. Finally, um, Paul moving on to the next idea that he wanted to establish the fact that we understood that salvation, our right relationship with God, any hope of a future with him is based on what God has done through Christ on the cross, that we receive it by pure grace through faith, that there is nothing good that we can do that earns us ultimate saving favor with God. Now, does our good behavior, does God like our good behavior? Yes, but not so much that he would save us on the merit of it. Okay, so God goes to great lengths through Paul to make sure that we understand that. Paul apparently is convinced now um, that the Galatians get it and hoping that by extension you get it if you've been here with us for the last six weeks. And so everything kind of hinges here on verse 13. Paul says, for you are called to freedom, freedom from the law, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh but through love serve one another. In other words, um, he had been spending three chapters on talking about what we were free from, and now here goes, but there's also a free for. Okay, we're not just free from so that we can do whatever we want. There is a purposeful freedom from the law, but there's an equally purposeful freedom for something very specific. Okay, and so that, that's the big hinge that this thing turns on, that Paul goes, there is a life, there is a future, there is a way um, that we ought to live. And what undercuts this freedom are, are the two things Paul's talking about. One is legalism, which we've just spent six weeks on, and the other is antinomianism, which is essentially the idea that we're saved by grace and then all bets are off. We're just perpetually saved by grace. There is no need to talk about sanctification. There's no need to talk about discipleship. These, these are the practical applications of antinomianism, which basically just goes, don't worry about ethics. It's about grace. Okay, and Paul goes, no, no, no. That makes no sense, right? Ephesians 2, 1 through 10 is this, is this critical foundational passage in, in Paul's writing. And he essentially goes through this pattern where he says, you were lost, you were dead in your transgressions, God made you alive, you've been saved by grace through faith, it's nothing that you have done. But then verse 10 often gets forgotten in that. He says, you were saved for, he goes, you are God's workmanship, created in... Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that you should walk in them. There's a saved from and there's a saved for, that you might finally become the man or the woman that God created you to be. And, and so that is the, the rest of your life in Christ, that there's a moment of salvation where we understand the gospel, we get that what Christ accomplished for us is all that, that needed to be done. There's nothing that God needs from us to accomplish salvation, but then begins the Christian life. 
where God empowers us, opens our eyes, frees us to actually live out the life that we were created to live in Christ, the life that is more freeing, that is more satisfying, that is more loving, that is more peaceful, that is the very thing our soul craves the most. Okay? So this is, and, and I think any Christian would tell you this, this is the difficulty of Christianity. It's actually seeing change. It's actually living out and being able to witness what Paul says that we are new creations, that something old has passed away, that something new has emerged. And oftentimes I think we look at our lives and the lives of people around us and go, ah, I'm not seeing the new. I'm seeing the same old struggles, a lot of the same old struggles that I've always had. Now I just kind of feel bad about them or I didn't feel bad about them. So it's kind of a, a raw deal I'm getting here. That, that fundamentally change is the hardest thing that we have to experience in the Christian life or that we don't experience in the Christian life. So essentially this is what Paul's talking about in verses 16 through 26. Change. How do we change? How do we really see that, that new creation take place in our lives? Okay, so verse 16, we'll start here. We're going to look at three things in this passage. One, what is really the problem? Two, what we can do to solve it? And three, what has been done for us? So, what really is the problem? Paul addresses this in verse 16. He says, but I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. Paul essentially says, we have to understand the depth, the breadth, the enormity of the problem here. He says, in the universe, there are two warring factions, and it plays out in your heart, it plays out in your life, it plays out each and every day in every decision you make, but it's far bigger than just the simple decisions, the simple morality, the simple kind of trite moments in your life. It's th those are a microcosm of something far greater that's happening in the universe, that there is a, a, a force, a powerful force of the Holy Spirit that is drawing you and leading you and teaching you what it means to walk in line with the Spirit, and there is the flesh that is tempted by Satan that's drawing you away from God into rebellion, and those, those are not just warring in your soul, but they are warring in, in the universe. Right? Timothy George, in his commentary, NASB commentary on this passage, says this, and I think this is important for us to get. He says, for Paul, flesh and spirit were two powers, two modalities of existence, locked in conflict on the battlefield of every individual Christian. We have not properly understood the eschatological tension that characterizes the church of Jesus Christ in this present evil world, nor the struggle between growth and decay, victory and defeat, which engages every believer until we have placed Paul's antithesis between flesh and spirit in its broader cosmic context. Okay, all of those big words mean this. This is way bigger deal than you have an angel and a demon on your shoulder that kind of want you to do the opposite things. This is a way bigger deal than kind of a, a trite morality or ethic that would go, oh man, should I be obedient or disobedient? When, when we minimize all of it down to only that, it becomes trite and simple and therefore very easy to rationalize. We go, ah, you know, what's ethics? What's morality? I mean, in this situation, what should I do? And, and this is a very different situation. And it makes sense to do that. And we can rationalize those things away very quickly if 
we take them out of the context of a cosmic, global, universal battle between God and Satan, evil and good. This has, been, this has been the battle told in every generation in the existence of the world. This is every great story taps into this cosmic battle. This is not just God and Satan. It's not just good and evil. It's, it's Darth and Luke, right? It's Frodo and Sauron. It's, it, it's uh, uh, Harry and Voldemort. It's, it's uh, uh, the, Jacob and the man in black, right? Lost? Uh-huh. It, it's... Apparently, there's some confusion about who it is in Twilight. I don't know. It depends on your team. I don't get it. But <laughs> the point is that there is a, a, an undercurrent. Uh, there is a battle going on that plays itself out. Now, I don't want to over-trivialize um, those moments of decision. But without understanding the greater conflict that's going on, these just become uh, just decisions we make. But if we understand, as George said, and I think he gets what Paul's getting at here, is if we can understand that those moments when they play out, that we have a decision before us and we can decide to follow Christ and walk in line with the gospel and follow the spirit or gratify the desires of the flesh, that what's happening there is actually a small battle in a much greater eternal war. A war that is eternally, not eternal, started and it will end. That's the promise of scripture. If we don't get that, and we, we turn a blind eye to what's happening in the universe, we miss it. We miss it. Okay, so where does this connect to us? It connects at the end of verse 17. It says, for the desires of the flesh are against the spirit, and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. And I think all of us go, aha! I knew God didn't want me to do what I wanted to do. I think in the back of all of our heads, there's this nagging thought um, that when God laid out his ethics, his morality, he essentially just looked down on us. Oh, they like that? Nope, can't do that then. Oh, they're really enjoying that one. That's extra bad. Oh, they hate doing that? You need to do that twice. And, and there's, a, there, there's almost a, an angry, kind of uh, divisive, vindictive part of God that wants to take away all the things that we like. If we wrote a list of 100 favorite things to do, like 98 of them are off limits, right? And so we read this and we go, oh, yeah, see, it it's doesn't want us to do what we want to do. Ah, but therein lies the question, what do you want to do? Right, so commentators go back and forth on this passage and go, okay, what's Paul saying? Is Paul saying that we really want to satisfy the desires of the flesh, but the spirit is pulling us away from that? Or is he saying we really want to walk in line with the gospel, but our flesh is pulling us away from that? What is it that we really want? And that's where that cosmic battle of good and evil does descend upon one moment and a, and a multitude of moments. Where we, where we essentially take sides. Are we with God or Satan? Are we with the kingdom of heaven? Are we with the kingdom of this world? Are we with Luke or Darth? It's your choice. Okay, so this is where it connects to us. And the answer, answering that question in our hearts is a huge first step in, in actually seeing change. Answering the question, what is it that I want? Paul gets at this tension in, in Romans 7, somewhat famously and confusingly. In Romans 7, 14, Paul says, For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. 
I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. See, Paul goes, listen, when, when I have these moments of clarity, when I have these moments to, to really take stock of my life and I'm not feeling um, overtly tempted towards rebellion, when I really can make a decision, I know that in my innermost being, I want to walk with God. I know that following God, that being like Jesus, that, that, that listening to the Spirit, leading, being led by the Spirit, I know that that's best. I know that that's most fulfilling and most satisfying. I know that's the best life. But in the moment, I, I feel that war waging, pulling me away, pulling me into rebellion, making promises that I know they can't keep, blinding me, causing me to forget the past pain that I experienced when I walked in rebellion before. Paul's got this great line that I, I, I go back to over and over, Romans chapter 6, verses 21 through 23. He says, but what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now that you have been set free from sin and become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end eternal life. For the wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. I love that. He goes, Tell me, as you look back on your life in those moments of rebellion, just, just think about this in, in moments of temptation, when you've got a decision to make. He goes, just think, what fruit came of it? What happened when you walked down that path? Do you remember? Do you remember the pain? Do you remember the brokenness? Do you remember the loss of relationship? Do you remember the depression? Do you remember the guilt? Do you remember the condemnation? Do you remember? Do you remember? Or in those moments, do we get blinded to it and go, oh, that seems like it'd be really fun. That seems like it'd feel really good. That is feeling really good. I'm going to continue. Or I could make a lot of money. Or I, and we get blinded to, oh yeah, I remember, we do make a lot of money up front, but then we get arrested. <laughs> that was bad, you know. So there, therein lies a, a, a fundamental question. What do you want? And Paul lays out the options very clear, very clearly in chapter 6. Verse 19, says the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. He goes, listen, if at the innermost being, at your core, if what you desperately want and crave and consistently walk in is this list, it's the rebellion, it's, it's satisfying the desires of the flesh, because you're not going to inherit the kingdom of God. Now, we go, wait, Paul, 
Didn't you just spend three chapters telling us that it's not about what we do, but about what Christ has done, and it's by grace? Yes. To which Paul replies, but if you understand grace, that means something. It means something for the rest of your life. It means change. It means new creation. It means you've been made new. It means you're an heir. It means you're a son. It means all the things he's been, talk he's been talking about. So he goes, listen, if you find yourself in a place where your soul in its deepest places wants this and it becomes the regular pattern of your life and your life is characterized by this list or parts of this list, he goes, you don't understand the gospel. We we've got to start at step one with you. You haven't seen the glories of Christ revealed in a way that you've accepted, or else this wouldn't be your innermost, deepest desire. Now, he's, he's not saying you can't slip up and do one of these things one time, and, and then you're not going to heaven. That's not the point. Every, every one of us, if we're honest with ourselves, sees ourselves on that list somewhere. We see our weakness. We see our temptation one of those things, maybe it's sexual immorality, maybe it's greed, maybe it's anger, maybe it's rivalries, maybe it's sorcery. <laughs> you all see yourselves on that list somewhere. And so it, it, it's, not, it's not like, oh man, yeah, I really struggle with that. I guess I'm, no, that's not Paul's point at all. He goes, if this, when, when you respond to that question, what do I want? If the answer is this, then you got to go back to square one and go, I, I don't think you get the gospel. But there's a second list, verse 22. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things, there is no law. Now, in a moment of clarity, and, and these rarely happen in the heat of a decision moment, but in moments of clarity... I think we all, no matter where we are, probably look at this list and go, okay, well, the second list is obviously better. Right? Like, obviously. Now, there may be things on that first list you go, yeah, you know, one of those things seems kind of fun. I'm kind of prepping to do three of them after church. I, you know, I don't know. But, <laughs> but, but really, at the end of the day, you, you, in moment of, of real honesty and clarity, you go, yeah, I mean, a life of love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, yeah, all day long, yeah. And so th there is a, a, a kind of a, a, a rational aspect to it where we go, that's clearly better. And so the question then is, how can we walk in this? How can, how can our lives be marked by this? Okay, so once we've identified what the real problem is, what can we do about it? Four things. In this passage, there are four verbs that Paul uses in conjunction with the Holy Spirit, right? To, I think, define our relationship with the Holy Spirit. And these four verbs are very, very similar, almost synonyms. But, but they are four different words. And so it, it makes you wonder, if he wanted to just say the same thing, he could have just used the same word every time. But he didn't. He used four different words, which I think draws us in to ask the question, okay, what, what is this saying about what our relationship can be with the Spirit to really see change, to really walk in this, to really live out the implications of the gospel? So four things. One, verse 16. He says, but I say... Walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify 
the desires of the flesh. This word walk means the pattern of conduct for all of life. That all of our life must be given over to the Holy Spirit. That there can't be any part of of what we have or who we are that we hold back if we really desire to see change. There may be incremental little pieces in the parts that we do give over to the Holy Spirit. We may see some fruit in that. But until we give over all of who we are, in submission to the Spirit, and don't hide anything back, we won't see the kind of fundamental change that we truly long for. Right? And this is, this is an idea that is, is throughout the New Testament. Jesus talked about this all the time. He says that you have to, if you want to save your life, you have to lose it. You have to take up your cross and follow me. There's all these extreme calls um, that God gives to people to give up everything that they are, to give up all of who they are to God. And the the only illustration I can come up with is the simplest is, is, is to wake up every morning and take everything you have and everything you want and all of your future and all of your desires and everything you love and, and spiritually and symbolically give it hand it over with two hands to God and go, do with it what you will. Today, next week, next year, do with it what you will. And we do that every morning. And sometimes God will take something and go, we're going to test that. And sometimes God will go, you can keep it. And sometimes God will take everything. But for us to stand before God and say, all of it. What we typically do, I think, is stand before God every morning, symbolically, like this. We've got a whole bunch of stuff here that we still want to control, and we still want to be in charge of, and we go, here, God, I offer you most of my morality, I offer you 1% of my money, I offer you one nice thing for my wife a week, I offer you one love my neighbor as myself a lifetime. (laughs) And and we we offer whatever part of ourselves, what we love and what we have in our future, we offer to God whatever part of that we don't want to control. And perhaps you could say that the process of sanctification, the process of being a disciple of Jesus, this process of change is a slowly but surely taking more out of our right and putting more into our left and offering more and more and more until we are two-handed and we can, with full confidence and full trust, offer our lives to God, knowing that he is far better equipped to be in charge of all of our life than anyone else, including ourselves particularly ourselves. That God is the only one big enough, strong enough, and good enough to be in charge of everything that we have. But until we become convinced of that, until we actually do that, we won't see the kind of fundamental change that we could actually walk by the Spirit, that every part of our lives has been offered and is being led by the Spirit, which brings us to our next one, verse 18. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Literally, to be brought along, right? We have um, a family rule that anytime we're in the parking lot, my daughter, Lily, who's three and a half, has to hold my hand, right? And she, she, she just knows that. I know it. She knows it. But she doesn't like it. And anyone that has kids knows um, that kids don't like to be told what to do. They don't like to be controlled. They don't like to be brought along. They want to do their own thing. But the rule is there because... It's a parking lot, cars are very dangerous, 
and my daughter is very stupid, okay? And so she would want to just kind of do her own thing, walk out in traffic, figure it out. I know that she would die. And so there is a rule that she must submit to me, hold my hand, and be led by me, that I am in charge, I am the protector, I know where we're going, and I get to make those calls, right? The only time she ever willingly grabs my hand or willingly comes um, to, to me for help or protection is when she's afraid, which isn't genuine submission at all. It's neediness. It's she comes to me when she needs or wants something from me, but it's not genuine submissiveness. So she is generally very outgoing. She'll say hi to anybody. She runs around at Tempe. She runs around the church, thinks she owns the place. Um, she she ha- meets people all the time. She's friends with everybody. She's got a whole group of homeless people she hangs out with. I, I wish she wouldn't, but she's just very, very social. Um, and yet, occasionally, when someone comes to the house, she hides. And she'll come and hide behind my leg and, and look to me for protection, but only on her terms. Only when she's feeling fearful. There is not a genuine submission, a genuine desire to be led. And so Paul says, in order to see real change, in order to see this actual, this actual movement of our character and our souls, we must be led by the Spirit. The, I mean, the simplest and most fundamental command of Jesus in the Gospels was what? Follow me. Follow me. We must acknowledge that the Spirit of God is in charge. Number three, verse 25. He says, if we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. If we live by the Spirit. Paul, kind of summing up all of Galatians thus far in this one sentence, basically goes, listen, if we know, which we've established over and over and over, if we know that we have been made alive Again, echoes of Ephesians 2, that God makes us alive. If we know that we have been made alive by the Spirit, right? In other words, if we know that there is nothing, nothing we can do, either for our salvation or, and this is going to get tricky, or for our sanctification, there is nothing that we can do in and of ourselves that is of any value. He says already in Galatians 3.3, he says, Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Now, this is in tandem, so I want to quickly go to the fourth one at the end of verse 25. If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. So if there is, in fact, nothing we can do, no amount of accountability, no amount of discipline, no amount of Bible reading, no amount of prayer, no no amount of these things that can actually change us without second half, walking in line with the Spirit. Literally, that word means to march in rank. And we hear the same idea that Paul confronted Peter with in Galatians 2.14. When he saw Peter's behavior that was essentially racism, and he said, no, Peter, your behavior is not in step with the truth of the gospel. It's not in line with, it's not consistent with what we know to be true about the gospel. He essentially says the same thing here in verse 25. If we were made alive by the Spirit, we also walk by the Spirit. Here's what he's saying. There is nothing we can do in and of itself. No no discipline, no accountability, no even Bible reading and prayer outside of 
the empowering work of the Holy Spirit that does anything good for us. We are made alive by the Spirit of God. We are brought along by the Spirit of God. We are changed by the Spirit of God. But there is, at the same time, a partnership that we have to willingly, consciously choose to cultivate this spiritual life. Cultivating spiritual disciplines like reading the Bible and like prayer, like being in worship, like sitting under preaching, like um, having accountability. All of these things are valuable because God, through his spirit, has chosen to empower them to be means of grace that we might experience change, that the spirit would move in the midst of those things. So there's this tension that I think Paul builds intentionally all throughout his writings, and we see it right here. He goes, listen, there's nothing you can do. It's all the Spirit, but the Spirit empowers your doing. Therefore, we have to cultivate these disciplines, right? To walk in line, walk consistently with the truth of the gospel, to walk consistently with the scripture. So um, this is the, the simplest illustration I can come up with, right? So if you've ever seen a relay race, Right? There's a baton involved, two racers. Guy's running, running in this direction. He's got the baton. There's another guy ahead of him. He's kind of doing this thing, right? looking back, waiting. As the guy gets closer, he begins to kind of run. As they hand the baton, what's the second guy do? This? Does he go sit in the stands for a while? Does he see that the guy behind him is going in this direction, get the baton, and then make a right-hand turn? What would happen if he did that? Yeah, you lose. Don't overthink it. it it's, not, it's, it's really not a hard question. <laughs> He'd lose. The idea is that the first runner hands to the second runner, that the second runner runs in the same way, in the same direction as the first runner. This is what it means to walk in line with the truth of the gospel, Galatians 2.14. This is what it means to walk by the Spirit, to walk in rank to walk consistently with the Spirit, to see what the Spirit of God has done, and we have the benefit that the Galatian church didn't, that we have this, that we can see with our own eyes when the Spirit of God led Jesus and, and brought Jesus and empowered Jesus and taught Jesus and told Jesus what to do. We see it over and over and over and over in the Gospels that the Spirit led Jesus. We can see what that looked like. We can see what it means to live a life in line with the Spirit that's led by the Spirit, that walks by the Spirit. We can see it. We can read about it. And therefore, we walk in line with that. Those are conscious decisions that in those moments of decision, we go, no, I know that this way, this path leads to pain and brokenness and destruction, and I'm not going to forget what happened last time. And I know that this path leads to peace and joy and satisfaction and love and grace and mercy, and I'm not going to forget what happened last time. And so it's, it is those moments of consciously choosing. I am going to wake up, and I am going to read my Bible every morning. I am going to pray every morning. I am going to be in Christian community. I am going to invite people to speak into my life and care for me and pray for me and love me. I am going to care for my wife. I am going to pray for my wife. I am going to do those things. Not because me doing things earns me anything, but that God empowers those things by the Spirit to change me. So is sanctification a work of God? Yes. Is sanctification a work of you working along with God? Yes. Yes. So, if we can understand 
the, the depth and breadth, the, the profound nature of our problem and why we find it so difficult to change because we are part of a cosmic battle. If we can be led by the Holy Spirit, if we can walk in all of our lives by the Holy Spirit, if we can be empowered by the Spirit, if we understand that we are made alive by the Spirit and yet we have to cultivate disciplines, we can see change, but not without the last thing, knowing and believing what has been done for us. And this is best said by Paul at the end of Romans 7, the passage we read before. Culminates all that confusion by saying this. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. That if, if we can come to that moment, day after day, week after week, year after year, that we can honestly look at ourselves and say, what a wretched man. What a wretched woman. Who will deliver me from this body of death? Who will deliver me from the power of my flesh? The, the desire to satisfy these passions. Who will? And then just as quickly as we identify the deep sinfulness, we jump immediately to the great grace of God. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord that what Christ accomplished on the cross and the grace that pours from it is what makes all that other stuff possible. It's, it's what makes our, our work and our discipline and our community and our accountability and the Bible and prayer, it's what makes all of it worthwhile. The culmination of human history, Christ's work on the cross. I want to finish from, with a line from a song called Roll Away Your Stone by Mumford and Sons, which I think sums this up beautifully and fittingly is the last thing I say in Arcadia. says this, you told me that I would find a hole within the fragile substance of my soul, and I have filled this void with things unreal, and all the while my character it steals. Darkness is a harsh term, don't you think? And yet it dominates the things I seek. It seems that all my bridges have been burned, but you say that's exactly how this grace thing works. It's not the long walk home that will change this heart, but the welcome I receive with the restart. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for restart after restart after restart after restart. Thank you that each and every time that we, like the prodigal, walk home, we are welcomed, we are loved. We are shown mercy and grace. We don't deserve it. We've been filling the hole in our soul with things that don't matter. Not only don't matter, but actually hurt us, work against us, kill us. And yet over and over and over, we seek to fill that hole with the same things, with the same result each and every time, foolishly forgetting the pain of the last time, foolishly forgetting the joy and the peace and the satisfaction of those moments when we've walked with you. Lord, I pray that we would experience real joy, real, real grace, real change in our lives. Lord, I pray that we would depend on the Spirit, trust the Spirit, give over our lives to the Spirit, that 
powerful tool that you have offered to us to guide us through life, to change us, to make us into the men and women that you've created us to be. I pray that we would be most satisfied in you and you alone. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Justin. Somebody preached the word this morning, did he not? That was awesome. Let's thank Justin for that. We'll have a chance to thank him again later on in the service uh, after our time.